0: Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our our last Dhamma session of the common year, common era two thousand and twenty. Be over in. A day and bit. The end of the year is a bit of a wake up call, I think, for most people.
1: The convention of having a year end
0: reminds us of the passage of time, impermanence. It reminds us of the year that is gone. It reminds us of the new
1: year ahead. It puts things often in perspective, even though it's only conventional. The truth is, every moment is new. Every moment is just as new as the last one. No year beginning or ending is going to change that. So welcome everyone For those of you who are new Or as a reminder for those of you who are not There
0: is no video in this stream This is an opportunity for us to close our eyes Focus on the Dhamma Focus on ourselves Focus on development of our minds, the purification of our minds, the healing of our minds. So we have a bit of a talk on the Dhamma, followed by some questions and answers. If you want to
1: post your questions, you can start doing that anytime. Once the question period starts, the chat will be closed down to only questions. If you don't have questions, or if you've already asked your question, go ahead and close your eyes and begin to practice focusing on your experience.
0: Tonight's topic is on the three characteristics. Three characteristics are impermanent. Something has the characteristic
1: of being impermanent, stressful. Some things have the characteristic of being stressful and selfless.
0: Some things have the characteristic of being without self. In fact, about these three, you could say they're pretty universal.
1: Pretty universal, not not completely universal, but
0: it's hard to find anything that slips there. Slips there. Control. In fact, if we talk about samsara, everything falls under these three. but they're not easy to understand. In fact, trying to understand them often leads to some of the problems.
1: But there are ways that we can understand these in a way that is actually harmful to ourselves.
0: There's a way that we can fail to understand in a way that leads to doubt or confusion.
1: And then there are ways of understanding them that are correct but
0: insufficient. Lacking. Missing something.
1: In fact, I would say that to some extent understanding these three is not precisely the proper description
0: of The three characteristics. The three characteristics describe a process of understanding that
1: comes about. They describe a bit of a change, a shift from misunderstanding things to understanding them properly. So, first, let's talk about harmful ways of understanding these. So, understanding impermanence, uh, our perception of impermanence can be harmful if we take it as a a positive thing. It can also be a problem if we take it as a negative thing in the sense of getting upset about it, but that's more of a description of the the problem with uh, not understanding, not appreciating it. So, thinking of it as a good thing, the problem is that when people hear about impermanence, they can sometimes think of it as, as a positive. Those who are more familiar with more doom and destiny religions, like ones that speak of an eternal heaven or an eternal hell,
0: might be relieved to find that in Buddhism, there's no such thing as a, such a permanent experience.
1: But more, more common, I think, is our constant search for pleasure, which is very much tied up with newness, with change. Because when something stays the same, it can't... It can't actually satisfy us. Listening to the same music again and again and again eventually fails to provide the same
0: pleasure. Eating the same food day in and day out. Seeing the same sights of beauty and attraction
1: eventually fail to provide the same pleasure. Ultimately, experiencing the same stimuli because of how the mind works and the brain works. The same experience fails to provide pleasure over the long term. So we constantly need something new. And so this can be seen as a benefit of seeking out new experiences, which is actually a very dreadful sort of perspective. Because that's exactly how addiction works. Addiction works by cultivating the habit of seeking out the new.
0: And sets you up for the dreadful reality of impermanence. That you're never going to be able to predict
1: what you're going to receive. And that nothing that you receive is
0: ever going to last more than a moment. And that you're going to be bombarded by all of the experiences that you're trying to avoid. Those those experiences that are outside of what is pleasant, old experiences, unpainful experiences.
1: Impermanence is a very dreadful thing. In fact, it's something that causes a great amount of stress. And disappointment to anyone, no matter
0: whether they want something new or not. A person who is unable to appreciate and understand
1: the nature of reality, who has not come from it, become familiar with this, with the, the this characteristic
0: of reality, will suffer quite a lot. For suffering, a wrong way to understand it would be as something to escape from, something to run away from, sorry.
1: Ultimately, philosophically, it's important to think of escaping from suffering in the sense of being free from it. Being free is probably a better way of describing it, but running away from suffering, So if you hear about suffering and all the things that are suffering it's quite common for people
0: to for us to find a solution in setting up our lives in such a way that we never experience those things.
1: Finding ways to escape them when they arise avoid them when they threaten to arise. And so we end up living our lives in fear. And this is like addic- just like addiction. On the other side is this aversion where we cultivate such a fear and aversion to the slightest hint of suffering that we're constantly, constantly
0: suffering, suffering from our inability to confront
1: and experience those things that we perceive as stressful. So running away from suffering is not the goal. In fact, suffering should be our entire focus. And if you really want to be free from suffering, you have to be free from the power it has over you. And That only comes by facing down the suffering changing the way you perceive it so that it no longer has power over you. It no longer causes the reaction. It's wrong to try and run away from it. And with non-self, a common way of misunderstanding, I think the most common, is the idea that non-self or selflessness means we have no self. means that we are mindless automatons, that there is no free will and that everything is predetermined, etc. And all of these ideas, well, they might seem somewhat of a follow, somewhat, that they somewhat follow from the idea of selflessness. They make the mistake of of depending on, on a perspective
0: of self. So the idea of the idea of, of of us being selfless for example a person
1: being selfless or, or a person having no self but even the idea of of being unselfish for example if it still relies on the idea that i am this and i am that it doesn't really understand or get to the point of what what selflessness is. And it causes a lot of problems, of course, because when you believe that you have no involvement in the future, then you lose any interest in trying to improve your situation. The thing about selflessness is it's it's about, about all of these, really, is they're a new perspective on reality. They involve a change in perspective. It doesn't involve such hard
0: stances. Selflessness involves this move away from entities.
1: The idea that I am anything at all, besides just a concept. To say, I am this or I am that, or to try and personalize these characteristics, especially the non-self one, to say,
0: Yes, I have no self. It's really contrary directly to the whole point. So how should we understand these three
1: characteristics? They're very important. If you haven't heard of these, these are very central to our practice. They're central to Buddhist theory. They're central to the the experience of enlightenment. They're really very core. They're a, they're a sort of a detailed description of the truth of suffering, and they're very practical. They're very much a part of our practice. So the right way to understand them. Another problem is that quite often we try to, as I said, understand them as a means of approaching and and incorporating them into our buddhism our, our practice but it's not a, they're not about understanding them understanding them can be useful for example if you understand impermanence that i'm gonna die all of this will pass you ever hear these buddhist teachers talk about oh nothing lasts everything passes good things will pass don't hold on to think good things because they're they're not predictable they're impermanent don't hold on to bad things they're not going to last forever don't don't get depressed or upset because all of this will pass that's a very good thing but you can't be complacent that's not actually that's not actually what this teaching means it's true but
0: it's true as more of a extrapolation of the actual teaching,
1: which is a very much a part of, of meditation practice and close observation of experience. Suffering, a good way to understand it is that nothing's going to satisfy you. The idea that things are unsatisfying, so people want to translate this as unsatisfying. We hear the Buddhist teachers sometimes saying this is a better translation, but it's not really. Unsatisfying doesn't get to the core meaning of this teaching. To say that things are unsatisfying is important. It's an important extrapolation. Yes, nothing's going to satisfy you simply because it's unpredictable and impermanent. Nothing's worth clinging to. The Buddha himself said that. Nothing's worth clinging to. They're not worth it. There's no positive, no happiness, no way of fixing bad things, and no way of fixing good things so that they last forever, so that they're predictable, so that you can control them. There's no way that they're actually going to please you or satisfy you. It's a good way of
0: understanding. It's a good thing to understand. It's just not enough. And with non-self,
1: when we understand that people, places, things, these are not me, not mine, not under my control. When we understand that even our physical body is not under our control, subject to sickness against our wishes, old age against our wishes, death against our wishes, these are things the Buddha taught. And so they are Buddhism. They are good understanding. But all of this understanding and any understanding that you attempt as as an act is never going to be sufficient. It's never going to actually free you from suffering i mean I mean ultimately now, the real way to understand these this is a characteristic of ultimate reality, the characteristic of experience. every experience we
0: have is momentary. Every experience that we have is stressful. Every experience that we have is selfless. With the with the
1: qualifier that by experience here, and it's not quite correct because I only it only applies.
0: to experiences that arise, experiences of something arisen.
1: And by that, what I mean is when you see something or hear something, the seeing, the hearing, the smelling, the tasting, the feeling, the thinking. On the ultimate level, these
0: are impermanent, stressful, selfless. And it's, it's difficult to try and explain
1: what this means and so I want to qualify this by saying that me describing this or explaining this to you is not meant to provide you with what you need to know it's meant to help direct your attention to see these things for yourself the first one is pretty obvious in fact all three of them are reasonably obvious and so it It can be misleading when you think you understand them or even when you think you've seen them because it's not about that. These three things are about your practice. They're the process. They're they're the catalyst. They're the three things. Seeing these three things is what the Buddha called the path to purity. He described them as the path. Seeing these things is the path. Every time you see them, they purify your mind. Every moment where we see these. Which really just means, to be clear, we're not talking about some moment of epiphany.
0: It means to see things, to see an experience arise, cease, change. To see our experiences come and go. It's quite
1: simple, really. What it means is that as you practice mindfulness, because that's where our practice is, not on these three things. As you practice mindfulness, this is the the seeing that will come about. This is vipassana, seeing clearly. Your perspective on, on, on reality will change from people, places, things, concepts, entities, and all the judgments and reactions that come along with that to Experiences that arise and cease, very simple actually.
0: Those experiences are impermanent, they're incessant, one after another. And that, that
1: practice can be quite disconcerting, unpleasant even. These three characteristics are negative, they're they're they're
0: not good things. And so in the beginning, meditators can be quite upset when they begin to see them.
1: It's like uh, going through withdrawal in a way because you can no longer run away from the reality. But these things shouldn't make us unhappy. To be clear that seeing these things and seeing these three characteristics and progressing in meditation, the whole point is that it makes you happier. If you're not happier, then... You were before, then you haven't succeeded in your practice, which isn't a disc- isn't a bad thing. Shouldn't be discouraging. It's just a sign that if you're practicing correctly, you're 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 experiencing this awakening
0: to the truth and and facing the truth. And so you'll start to see the incessant
1: arising and ceasing of experience. You'll feel sometimes like your practice, something's wrong with your practice. It's incessant, changing all the time, momentary. Nothing lasts, nothing I can hold on to, nothing I can rest on. This is very important. This shakes up your whole foundation of
0: reality. You need to be shaken up. need to be challenged.
1: Without the challenge, how could you possibly say this is something profound, new, enlightening? You don't come into the practice knowing things. Remember this, you don't know these things. You come into the practice with a lack of knowledge. The things you'll learn
0: should surprise you. They should be something you've never experienced before. The truth about dukkha, suffering, stressful. Dukkha in this
1: context is an adjective. It means stressful, painful even sometimes. But here stressful is probably better because it's not just about pain. Even pleasure is stressful. And in psychology, I think they talk about positive stress and negative stress. So they acknowledge that there's stress involved. It's just, of course, we don't see it as a bad thing. But the reason why it is a bad thing is because it, it it ignites the mind. It inflames the mind. And and in the beginning, that seems like a good thing in many ways, that it's exciting, right? Because it, it triggers our addiction system. Something pleasurable comes, oh, that's nice. But as soon as we fall into that, we fall into... The cycle of addiction, needing it, wanting
0: it, craving it, cursing it when we don't get it.
1: And and the change that comes about is eventually, and this can be hard for newcomers to believe, eventually you don't even desire it anymore, you see this process. And you wake up, you see so you see so clearly that pleasurable sensations just appear to you as this incessant arising and ceasing that is actually coarse, less refined, less profound, less peaceful than the alternative of them not arising. And eventually you have no interest. In the beginning, it's actually unpleasant, but eventually it's just you have no interest in the arising of anything. You have no desire for new things and no attachment to things that do arise.
0: And with non-self, selflessness, selflessness
1: actually applies to everything because ultimately you can say that nothing has this self. The other two have to be qualified because nibbana is not impermanent, and it's not stressful. That's because it has no involvement with arising. Nibbana is something that is unarisen. It's an experience of of non-arising, you could say. So it's something that is free from impermanence and stress. But it's not free from non-self. And selflessness... Selflessness is this move away. It's it really describes the shift away from our perspective on things. It's really the the it's what's unique to Buddhism. Though the other two, when described in terms of the meditation practice, there's still that that depth of understanding and appreciation is still unique. But philosophically, non-self is is the philosophical teaching that's unique to Buddhism. You could say pretty unique anyway. I mean, I assume there's other teachers out there who have picked it up or thought about it. But the depth of the Buddhist teaching in, in this regard is unmatched. Of course, the depth of the Buddhist teaching is unmatched generally, but
0: in terms of non-self, it refers to the shift away from Convention
1: towards ultimate reality. So when you start to see in terms of experience, as you focus on experience, you become accustomed to this perspective. It shifts your experience. So when you walk into a room, you see some new new things. Everything appears to you normally as a, a person, a thing, and all sorts of con- concepts about what they are and so on reactions and so on but as a meditator as you start to become mindful when you walk into a room you'll find yourself experiencing the sounds the sights the smells the tastes the feelings the thoughts and the reactions and you'll see them as discrete entities as discrete experiences that arise and cease so they're not entities i suppose they the word entity may apply but they're the only thing that has any sort of entity-ness to them and it applies only in in that sense they don't actually have some self they're selfless but reality is selfless reality is only these moments of experience an experience that arises and ceases there's it has a self that lasts a moment you could say it's selfless and that it's not involved with
0: any anything before it or anything after it. it. Comes and it goes. Just seeing in that way,
1: just seeing the arising and ceasing is ultimately enough. It's ultimately the goal. The goal is not to really gain any new perceptions. It's to strip away our misperceptions until we perceive things exactly as they are. Until, So you see, it's not about conceptually understanding these things. It's about getting to the point where this is how you see things, that you see reality as experiences arising and ceasing. And so... If you ever wonder whether you're seeing the three characteristics, just ask yourself, are you still reacting to things? Are you still clinging to things? Are you still extrapolating things as me, as mine, as this or that? Because eventually you get to the point where seeing is just seeing, hearing is just hearing, smelling is just smelling. When it arises, there's an experience of it as that. And when it ceases, the experience of it ceases, with no extrapolation or
0: feedback. Ultimately, the three characteristics are simple in
1: how we should understand them. And so how we should understand them is as a a part of the process of cultivating simplicity. Simplicity and
0: accuracy in our interaction with reality. You'll start to see how
1: our dissonance with these three, with the understanding of these three characteristics, is what leads us to stress and suffering. And as you start to become more acclimatized to the reality of them,
0: you'll find yourself suffering less. Quite simple. Less
1: and less until you get to the point where you see so clearly that you have no interest or de- or desire for further arising. The mind then experiences a release. And this is what we call Nibbana or Nirvana, where there's a, a cessation of experience. Something outside of samsara, there's not a way, a way to describe it because that would involve something arising, but there's no arising. It's the perfect peace, and it's followed by a great appreciation of the difference between that peace and anything we might find satisfying or controllable or stable
0: in in samsara. And so it it changes. It, it's what we call in why we call it enlightenment
1: because the experience of that changes a person. Gives
0: one a real and true appreciation of peace and suffering so that's the dhamma for tonight went on for a
1: while I suppose looks like we have a few questions from now on from now we will starting now we will take only questions moderators will now begin to monitor the chat and anything that's not a question will be removed
0: if you don't have questions just close your eyes okay let's begin
2: during a recent session my mind
3: stopped noting but I was keenly aware of everything around me and in my mind, sensations, feelings, emotions, thoughts, everything. I felt my mind clear and still during and afterward with no clinging or craving.
0: I was hoping you could shed some light on this. Did I make a mistake? Yes.
1: Yes, the mistake was to stop noting. So when the mind feels clear and still, you should note that as still or calm or so on. There's many good things, positive experiences that will come about through the practice of mindfulness, but when you start to take them as the practice, you have left the path or you have the danger of leaving the path. I can't say that just because you're not noting doesn't mean, just because you're not noting means you won't progress. It's just hard hard to describe how you're progressing, hard to verify that you're progressing. The use of the noting is such a great tool, not just for the power it has, but for how concrete it is. You see, if you tell me that you're keenly aware of everything, how do you know that isn't involved with self? Most likely it is. Most likely it doesn't have the power to remove the idea that I'm doing this, that this is me. Most likely it doesn't have the power to bring you deeper in the understanding of the three characteristics such that you see things as just moments of experience. It's hard to avoid extrapolation, and at any rate, it's hard to know for for, for you or I to know whether you are or not, for both of us to know. Whereas if you continue to note, the power of the noting is is going to straighten you out. And also you have no doubt about what to do. You have no doubt about whether you're doing what's proper because you're straightening up the mind. So you have to note those things. If If other things drop away, the noting doesn't drop away. It means you stop noting. You should note what's there, the calm, the the awareness, if you're just keenly aware, there's a sense of keenness to it. You know, you can note feeling, for example.
0: Even just focused or clear or so on.
2: There are some sessions in which I desperately try to hold on and finish, but the pressure
3: is too overwhelming and I break down in tears. Am I pushing myself too hard
0: Um
1: yes, practically, probably, practically, you're probably better off not to stop, but maybe to do lying, for example, change the posture in some way, if you're sitting, try and get up and do walking, maybe um, if you're walking, go down and do sitting, but ultimately, in the long term. It's not really a problem. The problem is not being skilled enough to deal with it to deal with the pressure. The practice isn't causing you the pressure your your approach to it is so try and try and grab grasp try and grasp the the experience. What is it that is the pressure there's usually disliking of it, stress, maybe fear even pain, tension, all of these things. The goal, just like anything in the beginning, you're not going to be very good at it, but the goal is to be able to pick these apart and see what's actually there. And when you see what's actually there, it it has no problem. There's no problem with any of it. The problem is the reactions to it that snowball and create a feedback loop that build and build until you break. In the beginning, it's common to break down and, and just feel like you're hopeless, that it's hopeless. I mean, because a part of our approach is in trying to control. We approach things from the point of view of I am doing this, and so we try to control. And 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 the breakdown, when you just can't make your practice work, is is a part of the change in perspective. It's part of what leads you. Getting really discouraged can be quite useful if you take it the right way, because you turn it into an appreciation of how you just can't do it. You know, when you say in meditation, I can't do it
0: anymore. Well, stop. Yeah, that's the point. You're looking at it the wrong way. It's not I doing anything. It's not I doing anything. Just do it, but stop looking at it from
1: a point of view of of I in the sense that you, because then what that leads to is trying to fix and control and change and, and uh, to improve your practice. Don't try and improve your practice, just keep practicing, keep trying, keep doing it. It's a very simple activity, just keep doing it and watch how your mind tries to control, tries to fix. Eventually, the the discourage will change into a a sort of a resolve.
0: I can't remember the word. The word um, giving up, whatever that word is, give up, stop trying to. Uh, I guess a um, forfeit, admitting defeat. Anyway, just try and learn about how you push yourself too hard. I have never practised
3: loving-kindness before, but I think it would be beneficial to my practice. What is the
1: technique for practising loving-kindness, and for how long should I practise? There's nothing mysterious about it just but it is good to to do it a little bit formally, like sit down and have some words that you say. Start with yourself. may I be happy? Think about well one good way that I like to do it is think about the people close to you physically like. Who's in the room with you? Who's in the house with you? People in your neighborhood and start moving outward until you can encompass the whole world. Go in stages, the town, the the province, the country, the world, the universe. And just spend some time wishing them all to be happy and free from suffering and whatever good things. How long? Well, just... Don't let it take over your practice. It shouldn't be your main practice, but it's quite useful if you have, it's most useful if you have anger towards other people. If you're not an angry person in general, it's not really that important that you practice it. It's one of the teachings that is useful in in instances. So be clear that it shouldn't be something that you just do as your practice that's going to lead to enlightenment, because it's not.
0: It's useful when you're angry, when you dislike someone, or that sort of thing. I have OCD, and so to
3: deal with intrusive thoughts and feelings, I've been noting obsessing, reacting, and disliking. My OCD in general has always been driven by the objective to create doubt, fear, and guilt. How will noting help me to overcome
1: this? Well, first of all, note the doubt, the fear, and the guilt as well. So doubt and fear and guilt are reactions. And we react to them, more importantly, that's a first step. We react to those, so we can never actually dissect this all until we come to terms with the fear and the doubt and the guilt. So try and note them as well. Once you start to be able to note things in general, and that means everything, the reactions and the things you're reacting to, you'll be able to deconstruct all of this and the reactions cease because instead of reacting, you're just responding. Seeing is not bad, seeing is just seeing. Seeing doesn't trigger an OCD reaction, it just triggers a appreciation that it is seeing. That's the shift that has to come about. It's not easy, but it's simple, it's pretty simple. So the, the most common prob- problem here is that Uh, we fail to note certain things. We note certain things and then we can't figure out why other things are still happening. We should note those other things
0: as well. When I practice meditation, thoughts, music, or feelings
2: arise and when I note them, they disappear. What should I do?
0: Keep practicing. Sounds like you're doing well. It's a good example of impermanence. The incessant arising and ceasing. it's come and go. You'll start to appreciate that. You'll start to see that that's just the nature of things.
1: And that appreciation will prepare you for anything, because when something arises, it does not, oh no, this arises, oh, something new arose. You're ready for it. You're
0: able to experience it just as it is. And then you're okay when it's gone as well. Sometimes
2: in meditation, I go deep into thoughts and forget to be in the present moment.
0: By going deeply into thoughts, am I doing it wrong? Yes. I mean, it's not so much that, it's that when you
1: realize your thinking, then you should note it. So it's important not to judge your practice. You can analyze it and, and look at how you, there's things that could improve, but you don't judge in terms of wrong, right? When you're thinking a lot, it's quite easy to get discouraged. Oh, no, I wasn't mindful at all. But take that as a note, as a point. And okay, when the, when I'm thinking next time, I'm going to try to catch it. You're not going to be able, especially in the beginning, to stop your mind from thinking. But you can remind yourself when you realize that you're thinking, that this is thinking. And that changes the way you perceive it and sort of um, prevents
0: the mind from getting lost or caught up in it. The idea
2: of impermanence has made me feel uneasy about long-term projects and commitments.
3: How should I handle these feelings? They make me question if I should do anything.
1: Yes. You see, it should make you uneasy. There was a story about a, a god Sakka, who who was actually a Buddhist and a sotapanna. He had practiced well. He had seen nibbana, but he was still a god and an angel. And so he had this great palace up in heaven. And Buddhist monks went to visit him in heaven. I mean, believe this or not? It's the the belief in the story isn't important, but the 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 moral of the story is very important. And he was so, he, he, and he saw this monk coming and he was so happy to see him. He said, oh, please, venerable sir. He played respect to him and said, come on in, come see my home. And and it was Moggallana was the monk. Moggallana came up to the palace and just a huge, beautiful mansion beyond anything you might ever see on earth. If you think of the most luxurious earthly mansion, it's nothing compared to this. And he walked up to it and he, he he extended his right foot and touched it with his big toe touched the step the the walk, the steps going into the mansion and as soon as he touched it the whole thing shook and all the stones started to shake and, and teeter as though it was about to fall over
0: and Saka just freaked out he got quite upset and started pulling his
1: hair and what, what's happening what's happening what are you doing
0: and moghalana stopped and then he said um, you have become negligent when we see
1: impermanence when we're when when our plans our goals our our possessions our lives are shaken up how big a part of the of of suffering is this for us and our lack of appreciation, how how deep a hole does it dig us? When we cling to people, places, things, from the moment our children are born, from the moment we fall in love, we start building up a life that is so dependent on permanence, on stability, on, on the illusion of stability and permanence, we dig ourselves a big, big hole, that's why we suffer so much when things change. Which is ultimately what it is: when
0: someone you love dies, it's just change. It's it's really nothing, but it's something,
1: something to you because you've made it something. You see, you've, you you lacked, you were un, you you couldn't see the impermanence, the suffering, the
0: selflessness of it or or your perspective your way of looking at it went went against these these realities
1: and because of that you you clung because you didn't see it as because you saw it as something that was me and mine and you clung to it but so talking about long term projects and commitments you should be You should be uh, uneasy if you become dedicated and and dependent on them, committed to them. What if they don't work out? They very well may not. They usually don't work out the way we expect them to. Life should not be lived in terms of future commitments and goals because there will always be more future. And if you live that way, you're living in the future. You're cultivating the habit. Of living in the future what we don't realize about our lives is is that everything that we incline our mind towards everything that we think about and ponder it becomes the inclination of the mind The mind begins to take it as a habit so living in the future leads to living in the future that's all it leads to it doesn't lead to a future where you're in the present anymore it leads to more future Eventually, you have to change your
0: perspective, not just achieve the things you want, because getting what you want leads to more wanting. You shouldn't do anything, per se. You should be present.
1: It's not about things that you do. There's a Buddhist saying a joke that goes, don't just do something, sit there. Don't just do something there's very little that we can do in life that's of any value you see don't just do something that's what we do we do something what do you want to be when you grow up you have to answer that there has to be an answer and you have to come up with one but why are you coming up with an answer why do you want to be anything when you grow up rather we should we should we should make it clear that We have duties and responsibilities. We're going to have to make a living, and that's how we should approach all that. It's not about plans. It's about
0: necessary realities. You need livelihood, so work that out. Ultimately,
1: what should be of most importance to us is the present and our quality of how we do things, not what we do. So you see, plans are never going to be important. It's how we do whatever
0: it is we're going to do that's most important. What should we do when
3: noting touching? Should I visualize the touch point or also the thinking about it? I sometimes visualize a white light coming out from the point and I'm confused by
1: it. When the mind is touching the point, just say touching. That's just as though you put your mind in your foot when you walk. It's the very same thing. If you see
0: white light, you should note that separately as seeing, seeing.
2: When confronted by very stressful emotions that are so hard to accept,
3: is it worth feeling all the pain and suffering from these emotions or simply distract
1: ourselves from them There's nothing wrong with feeling pain and suffering, so what we have to realize is that it's our reactions that cause us suffering. so if you stop reacting, then nothing can hurt you so yes, facing is facing is is the very essence of mindfulness. People don't realize about mindfulness. That's the whole point of of doing it in the first place: is to face things. It's not quite about accepting them. In a sense, it's accepting, but it's more like understanding, because you see, in the in the in the end, it's about abandoning and and discarding them,
0: uh, losing, discarding any interest in them. So it's about seeing clearly. That's our goal. When I note, should I use my mother tongue, or can I
3: use English? Very often, English words are shorter, more succinct, and to the point.
1: Use whichever language you you like. Try and stick to one language. Don't expect one language to give you an advantage like that. Like, if you decide that English is what you want to go with, then that's fine, but it's not going to solve your problems. And sometimes meditators do this. They'll switch languages because they think it's... The new language is going to, you know, oh, it works better. All it does is keep you more interested for a while. That's how new things work, and it's a part of the problem.
0: So don't be too concerned about which words you're using. But if you use English, that's fine.
2: I feel that when I note a sensation in my mind by saying, breathing
3: in, breathing out, that this creates a distance from direct experience of the sensation, and I focus too much on the word. What am I doing wrong?
1: Well, those are two things. I mean, we don't say breathing in, breathing out. We focus on the stomach rising and falling. So if you're interested, you might read our booklet on how to meditate. Um, You can even sign up for an at-home course if you're interested. But focusing on the word isn't necessarily the case. It can happen, but it's actually two different things that are going on here. Being distanced from the direct experience to an extent is a part of the reason why we do this. We want the healthy distance, not in the sense of not experiencing it, but in the sense of not seeing it as more than simply what it is. It feels more distant because we're not getting caught up in the particulars and the details. The Buddha explicitly told us to do this. He said, one does not grasp at the particulars and the details he's explicitly told us to do this that's the whole point seeing should just be seeing and that feels somewhat distant but it's a healthy distance you still see it as seeing you know it's seeing and that's it nothing more nothing less that feels very empty in a sense like well where's all the all the extra juicy bits uh, it's those juicy bits that are a problem and have nothing to do with what's actually happening so they're what we have to sort of let go of and from if you find yourself focusing instead on the word that comes as that comes uh,
0: as an extra thing you should note that as well like knowing or something
2: i'm becoming more and more lazy and negligent and i'm noting but
3: also practicing less i feel a little off track if i'm worried i also notice it so should i just accept this and observe passively
1: you have to be vigilant to some extent and realize that you're when you're not meditating, you're cultivating defilements, most likely. You're going to be falling back into greed, anger, delusion, and be careful to note those. And as you see them increasing, it gives you the push that you need to continue practicing.
0: Because it's dangerous to stop. You'll start to cultivate bad habits.
2: I sleep at varying hours. Should I wait to sign up for the at-home course until I've
3: corrected my sleep schedule?
1: So the at-home course only requires you to do one hour of meditation a day. It requires you to be prepared to work up to two hours a day. But when you do those two hours, is up to you. It's recommended that you don't do them all at once. So usually some in the morning, some in the evening, but that's not important. Whenever you can, half-walking and half-sitting, walking first and then sitting done together. So no, you don't have to wait for sleeping. It's not really related to your sleeping hours, as long as you don't sleep too much. Would in hurry
3: or simply hurry be a valid noting, such as when waiting in a line or
1: waiting for the alarm bell to end the session? It's not very precise. You're better off noting because in a hurry doesn't describe what you're feeling. It kind of does, just because of how English has has applied it. But what is the actual feeling? Anxious, restless, wanting. There's a lot more. There's a lot better words that are more precise. Like in a hurry, kind of describes it, but it's not really what's happening. It's more. There's a, a restlessness or a craving or desire, an
2: anxiousness. In meditation, I often find that I am striving for a
3: sense of peace or happiness. Is this an effective practice? And if so, what
1: exactly should I be aiming for in meditation? So you shouldn't be focused on an aim. You should just do the practice. Because you see, every moment we're creating habits or or reinforcing them or breaking them down. We're, We're changing the way our mind works. So if you focus very much on a clear state of mind the results and the goals come by themselves you see As soon as you start aiming for something you've stopped practicing you stop doing the work it's like a person who's working physically physical labor every time they get up and look at the clock or uh, stop to think about the money they're going to get paid or think about the, their time at home they they lose focus on what they're doing So there should never really be an aim per se Anytime you have an aim, what are you doing? You're not practicing. If you want to step back and remind yourself, that can be helpful, but only provisionally. Ultimately, the only thing that really helps is doing the work. A person who works labor, they just do the work. They don't focus on the end of the day. When the end of the
0: day comes, they get paid. Oh, where did this money come from? Oh, right, I did some work. What is the best way to stop identifying with thoughts?
1: See them as just thoughts. When you say to yourself, thinking, that's what it does. It clears clears out any kind of reaction or attachment or identification. I
0: mean, it eventually does once you get skilled at it. Just practice. If you haven't read our booklet, I recommend reading
1: the booklet, maybe even signing up for an at-home course. It's all free, so we're not ever looking for money or anything from you. Maybe respect. I would i would say this. If you want to do this, this course, you need a little bit of respect and appreciation that it's all free and that we come to it with a cer- certain amount of sincerity, and you should as well. And if you're going to take it on, you should be sincere about it and respectful and so on. So we do expect something. But if you don't have that, well it's up that's your problem. It's really not it's not on us. So honestly, I suppose no expectations whatsoever. But you might you might be reprimanded or
0: chastised if you're if you're not taking it seriously. So be prepared for that.
2: Sometimes, when meditating, I feel so embarrassed to meditate that when people come
3: near me, I just stop. What should I do to not feel embarrassed?
1: I'll well, just note feeling embarrassed. We're not trying to stop things; we're just trying to see them as they are as you see them as they are they'll be they'll start to fall apart,
0: they'll dissolve. you're deconstructing your habits. I have problems with memory because of schizophrenia
3: and also medication. I have meditated for some time now, but it's hard to be mindful the whole day. Can I still make progress with these problems?
1: Yes, I would recommend finding a way with your doctor, perhaps, to work on getting off the medication. I can't tell you to get off your medication. I can't encourage that, and I probably wouldn't because of, the, of course, the bad results, but my belief is that eventually, through the practice of mindfulness, you can wean yourself. Even a schizophrenic could wean themselves off. As far as I understand schizophrenia, that there's a separation between the hallucinations, etc., and the, the reactions and paranoia towards it. So you're not going to make great results on on most medications because of how they react and because of how uh, you interact with the medication as a means of avoiding things eventually the goal is to face things and that can be very hard of course when you have an extreme mental illness there's no trivializing that but eventually that's the goal that's what you have to work with but yes absolutely you can make progress and don't be discouraged that you can't be mindful the whole day try and apply the technique as best you can whenever you can
2: Intellectually, I understand that the body is impermanent and selfless, so should one focus more on
0: the meditation instead of keeping up with exercises and getting healthy? Yes.
1: Yes, I mean, to some extent you have to keep the body healthy, but that's not that complicated. Just don't eat crap. Um, be careful what you ingest. It's hard these days, you know, I think you do have to be conscious to some extent. Like um, when I was in California, living in, in in North Hollywood, almost every day people brought me food in styrofoam. And I had done some studies many, many years ago when I was in university on the effects of styrofoam. When you eat something out of styrofoam, you end up eating the styrofoam and it's carcinogenic, I think, and it really builds up in your body. So I I just asked. I said I realized. I said, "I'm probably eating a lot of styrofoam because, unlike other people, I was getting it food in it every day." So I asked people to stop bringing me food in styrofoam, just as an example of something that I think, as Buddhists, we can be conscious of. Because, yes, absolutely, ultimately, you just let go. But if you're not at the point where you're an arahant, you still have to be careful. And and really, I think even an arahant has some duty to stay healthy. You know to some extent. So you, you have to be mindful of these things if you know about them. It comes down to the difference between doing things because they're proper and actually taking them seriously and getting upset or, or uh, dependent on them. So there's many things in the world that we can do with our engagement with the world as long as it's just as a matter, of course, just because it's the right thing to do, not because I want
0: to do it or need to do it or I'm worried about the body or that sort of thing. One
2: last question. During meditation, I find my mind takes
3: a long time to quiet itself, but eventually I find peace. When I come out of
2: meditation, I feel disconnected from the world, empty, perhaps depressed. Why do I feel this way?
1: There are many reasons why you might feel that way. I could conjecture. I mean, it sounds like it's related to desire for peace and that sort of thing, but it, it, none of that really matters. We're not interested in why you feel a certain way. We're interested in that you feel a certain way. And we're interested in seeing it more clearly and deconstructing our, our reactions to things. So try and just just appreciate when you're depressed. Say, depressed, depressed. When you feel disconnected, feeling... When you feel calm and peaceful, you have to note that. When you want to feel quiet, you should note that. If you feel quiet, you should note that.
0: So we're over time now. If there's uh, more important, urgent questions
1: that people need answers for, we can answer them otherwise. Are we ending?
2: Yes, Bhante, that was the end of the first tier of questions. All right then.
1: Wow, really good session. We skipped last session because of
0: the the timing. A lot of people, I think, were with family. But I wasn't sure if today would be similar. 100 people. 99.
1: 103 at one point. Lots of people here, which is great to see. A lot more people will watch it on YouTube, so I appreciate everyone's engagement and interest in the teaching. Thank you, Chris and Max and Jim. Oh, Max isn't here. No, Jim is here. Chris and Jim. Olivia is also not here. They're on, Max and Olivia are doing meditation practice right now. They're doing at home courses.
3: We also Let's had go. help from Ulu today. Oh, Ulu.
1: Yes, Ulu is here. I didn't see him. Oh, there he is. Thank you, three.
0: Sadhu. Wish everyone Sadhu. have a good night.